For April 16th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 511. I love dogs. Hello and welcome to Overthinking It, your smart, funny friends from the internet. We are never happier than when we're discussing the TV, movies, video games, music, all manner of art and culture and fun. And we've got a story two-hander for you today. Uh, Matt Rather, the usual host of our show, has been banished to a distant Japanese island. And I am here with my good <laughs> dear friend, Mark Lee. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Pete. I am very excited to talk with you about isle of dogs oh great such a such a great movie title yes so please blanket spoilers for wes anderson's new pseudo stop motion cgi japanese phantasmagoria (laughs) i love dogs (laughs) spoilers say it again say it again I, I love, love dogs. dogs. See, yes. look, it already works. This might be one of the best movie titles of all time, by <laughs> the way, and we'll get into that in the podcast. But uh, before we get into Isle of Dogs, we've got a little something we need to talk to all of you about because we want you to join us in New York City. Mark, tell them what I mean. Yes, uh, on May 12th, 2018, that's a Saturday, we are having our uh, annual Eurovision watch party um if you're listening to this podcast you're probably familiar with eurovision the singing contest that is described as american idol meets the olympics uh eurovision uh, european countries send their greatest to lisbon portugal to battle it out uh in an amazing song competition uh we got a bunch of people we fill this big old bar at the, uh, in midtown manhattan called the liberty um it's free to join there's no cover charge um and we have a good time uh we you know we got to talk to people lots of european expats come out and just regular old american folks as well um that's saturday may 12th 2018 in new york city rcp on facebook you'll find the link in the show notes Definitely. I've been this is a hopping party. I remember last year there were big crews from all the different countries and you get to vote for who you think your winners are. And there's just it's just a hype environment. Even if if you've never seen Eurovision before and you want to be around some good old fashioned hype, this is a great place to go. Also, by the way, what you may not realize if you only listen to our podcast is that Overthinking It has a YouTube channel. And by cosmic luck, the Overthinking It YouTube channel has become quite popular with global <laughs> Eurovision fans. So, uh, I mean, we've got <laughs> some, we've some of them appreciate a wry American take. On European culture, others flame us relentlessly in the comments. So be the former and not the latter if you're listening to this. Come to the Overthinking It YouTube channel and check out our wonderful collection of humor and joy. Uh, And that's the last bit of Eurovision plugging we'll do for today because we have to go to the Japanese archipelago. Speaking of Americans observing other other cultures. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Speaking, Speaking as an outsider, speaking as an insider... I mean, so, Mark, the the topic that jumps right out to us in discussing I Love Dogs, in case you haven't watched What what was the name of the movie again, Pete? I Love Dogs. No, it's called Isle of Dogs. I-S-L-E. Okay, so the movie has two titles. This is a movie that is about people that speak different languages and dogs that speak different languages. The dogs all speak English. The people more or less all speak Japanese, with a couple of exceptions. And it uses that as a mirror 
for how human beings and dogs can't really understand each other but still manage to have relationships. And so a lot of the movie is kind of about cultural misunderstanding and translation and all this other kinds of stuff. But in English, the the movie has two titles that are puns that go in opposite directions. In English, it is I-S-L-E of dogs, which Isle of sounds like I love. And in Japanese, it is Inugashima, which sounds like Onigashima, which is a uh, location in a famous Japanese folktale, which means the island of the demons. <laughs> so it is a joke about how dogs are like demons, and it is a joke mm, about how yeah. we all love them, depending on what language you speak. Literal translation is impossible. But anyway, Mark, with the whole idea of translation and identity politics and kind of perspective and representation is, is huge in any sort of discussion of this movie. What's your initial take on it? Where do we where do you start in thinking and talking about this? I, well, I start from the fact that I am an Asian American. Um, okay, I, I, I have to admit that, right? Like, <laughs> well, it's not a so, bad thing. You don't have to admit it. It's not a confession. It feels like it sometimes because because Asian Americans live under a shadow of perpetual foreignness. Uh, I'm not the person to coin that phrase. It's been tossed around a lot over the last couple of years, um, in, in the Trump years, if the Trump era, if you want to call it that, um, and. As an Asian American and a savvy consumer of pop culture, uh, my antennas immediately come up. My hackles, my cackles, you know, like the little things that uh, back of Saru's neck in Star Trek Discovery. Um, I am You're a hyper ganglia, my right? ganglia. I am immediately <laughs> hypersensitive to the fact that this white man, and not just any white man, Wes Friggin Anderson, uh, has decided to make a movie that really. Uh, milks its cultural setting of not just any Asian country, but Japan. It milks it for all that it's worth and just like really pushes it in your face. And like the Japanness of it um, is really important to this movie. And uh, the, the, the charge that is the criticism that is leveled at this movie, and we'll talk about it's fair or not fair, is a cultural appropriation, right? How dare this white man come in and just steal his Japanese culture? Um, so if you want to really kind of underthink it, and do it at a really surface level. And there was a part of me that wanted to attack it in this way. It's it criticized it for exactly that, right? It's um, again, once again, the white man coming in and taking the good stuff of Asia, essentializing it, just really amping up the exoticness of it all—the sumo wrestlers, the drums, uh, the just the, the twee Japanese-ness of everything—and putting it up for an American, a largely white American audience, for them to appreciate. Not as a complex culture, but as this just object um, of Orientalism, I think is a, is a, is a fair uh, way to describe it. Um, so I will admit that part of me felt that way, um, but upon further inspection, that is far, far, far from the intent of what the movie is trying to do. It is... Um, uh, the, the creators like went well out of their way to do it, and the substance of the movie is not that at all. Now, does it participate inevitably in the discourse that I'm talking about? Yes, but not at all by the movie's choice. So I am going to toss it to you, Pete, to take it from like the very underthinking way of approaching the movie to uh, uh, something uh, a lot more interesting. Sure. So the first thing to note the other than what we've already noted which is that isle of dogs in japanese means something different than it does in english with regards to its punnery it's also worth noting that the movie was co-written by a japanese woman named kunichi nomura who's appeared in wes anderson's movies before not nominally a screenwriter it gets a story credit but uh that doesn't necessarily 
essentially in and of itself change everything. But there is a lot of depth to the Japanese side of the movie. And uh, in particular, the movie is uh, structurally a retelling of a famous Japanese folktale called Momotaro, which is about uh, an orphan child who travels to a distant island with a, with his animal buddies and and fights demons and kind of brings and brings ho- comes home and and makes home restores the home and makes things happily ever after. He has a kind of his uh, relationship with his adoptive parents and he goes out on this journey and he, and he comes around and he comes back and his adoptive parents he's very sort of uh, respectful for them and, and there's like themes of how children uh, take care of the older generation and, and loyalty and bravery and niceness and. And um, and the island where he goes on his adventure with the dogs is kind of a modern retelling of the island of the demons. And the movie is uh, really rooted in in that and also in several Japanese art styles. Um, there's there is obviously a straight up uh, Hokusai reference, right, which is the sort of. Um, dorm room, <laughs> uh, the sort of dorm room uh, Japanese art that everybody has seen. But there's there's a fair amount of other sorts of Japanese painting and wood carving and mosaic that's incorporated in some of the uh, visual style of the movie. And also, you got to think that it's really influenced by post-apocalyptic, I, w- I would say Akira and sort of Neo-Tokyo, this sort of dystopian uh, but but futuristically advanced idea of japan and popular culture which is something that's not necessarily that's not created by the west about japan it's created by japan about itself yeah um, but well by the way having a decidedly retro tint exactly, exactly. which is really interesting yeah, um, which, but, yeah definitely but uh, the other thing that really struck me is uh, being in- intensely authentically japanese about this movie which is not at all uh, observable if you don't know japanese is that uh, apparently the, the dialogue is very authentically japanese uh, it makes a ton of small cultural references that would only be appreciable by someone who is fluent in japanese and japanese culture um we're going to link in the in in the show notes to an excellent article in the new yorker that uh, illuminates all this of course it's written by a native japanese speaker and, uh, and someone who was born in japan um but all that is to say is that this is not uh lazy it is not stereotyping it is not that base level essentializing um that uh it's sort of as critics would uh the, the knee-jerk identity politics of america uh would would want it to be to hold it up as a sort of as a bad thing that is not at all what's going on right. it's authentically but japanese but at the same time we don't want to invalidate the experience of feeling like there's something uncomfortable and exotic about this exoticizing not exotic no. like ooh the movie is exotic but that the movie is exoticizing in, in the sense that it is deriving a certain measure of its excitement and of its kind of aesthetic power from the notion that the things that it's depicting are strange to at least some of its audience but but it's interesting to think that the movie might actually kind of symmetrically mean different things depending upon who you are when you watch it, which is just an intriguing idea and not one that I think any one person could necessarily demonstrate just all by themselves. But based on this, particularly that New Yorker article, but also digging into some of the background of the, of the movie is really interesting because it matches so well with the themes of the movie that would be true even if this movie didn't take place in Japan. Uh, which I just think is so interesting. I mean, Mark, yeah, dig, what, dig, dig into it. Dig into it. Oh like, yeah, sure. The 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 dualism of this and how it maps uh, the cultural and the translation and the language stuff and how it maps onto the themes. So yeah, so you you love dog. You have a dog, Mark. Oh, uh, do I? Yes. Her name is yes. Harper, and she's the best. The best dog. So. 
there's a great so you've looked at your dog and you can see your dog's face and you can kind of feel an empathy for your dog and sense what your dog wants or thinks based on sort of how they behave right yeah yeah but you don't really know you you have a sense you have a feeling you have kind of a, a way of interpreting what they give you but it's not like you can sit down with your dog and talk I mean, if you if you, if you really want to put it in those terms, sure, Pete. Like, I well, feel I mean, like that's what this movie is doing, right? Is that this movie is putting it in those terms. This movie is taking the relationship between uh, humans and dogs, and particularly devoted pet dogs as well as stray dogs. There's an intersectional relationship within the dogs. So within the dogs, there is a lot of identity politics, but there is also identity politics between the people and the dogs, and among the people as well. But uh. But the movie's, I think, essential gesture is the dog looking into the camera with the big puppy dog eyes. Uh-huh. And, and, and the dog it, within in the dog's eyes is this really complex seeming uh, feeling of devotion and expectation, but also of incomprehension. And, and I think that like it's sometimes for me, I find it kind of scary how dogs don't understand their situation when scary huh yeah that's that's an interesting word unpack that a little bit well so i don't know this is a little bit weird but i i sometimes get very scared of the very very remote possibility that reincarnation is possible and the idea that i'd be like i'd come back as a dog or a duck or something and just because because like the the animal doesn't understand we understand more about our situation than animals that are not humans understand about their situations by and large i would say as far as i know yeah. although also you could say well the human understanding is something that's kind of a vanity animal you could conceive of beings that are of a higher order than humans who have a much much deeper understanding of their existence that makes the human understanding of our existence seem trivial by comparison there's plenty of twilight zone and outer limits stuff about that we don't have to go through in this movie or in this movie discussion but the idea that uh, that a dog uh, well the dog does the dog when you leave the dog and you come back right the dog every time you leave a dog it seems kind of like you're leaving them forever and, and when you're so excited back, when they come back Yes. And this is the Futurama episode. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Okay. So to slow it down, there's an episode of Futurama. Mark, you tell the story. You know this episode of Futurama. Oh, it's been a long time since I've seen it. But basically, the long and short of it, right, is that – and I'm already blanking on the um, on the main character's name of Futurama. Sort of the, oh, the Fry. Tw- Fry, yeah, the 20th century yeah. man Fry. It doesn't um, matter. He, he gets frozen. He gets yeah, he gets frozen uh, and in cryogenic suspension, and the dog uh, waits for him to come back, and he doesn't. And the dog dies. That's right. basically what happens, right? Right. Except it's extended out over very long periods of time, and you see the dog waiting for him yeah. day after day, week after week, month after month, with that devotion that a dog is capable of, that a human admires i fear it a little bit because it's just so it's such a vulnerability there there's a strength to it and there's a vulnerability to it and it's a relationship that really requires the other member of the relationship to show up a dog is a pack and humans are social animals but dogs are pack animals and so the dog expects yes the and no. to they, they evolve from yeah. pack animals but they uh present th- this is my surface level understanding of the science sure, sure. i believe that they present uh far more of a devotion to uh, humans, they're, they're very much socialized to humans rather than like conceiving themselves as um, being members of a pack. But uh, right. uh, yep, continue. So, so the dogs in in I Love Dogs, which I'm just <laughs> going to call it that rather than Isle of Dogs. The dogs in I Love Dogs have this love for humans that 
to a certain degree, fails to understand the cruelty and comprehend the cruelty of what the humans have done to them by shipping all the dogs off to this island of trash. Okay, so if you are listening to this and you have not seen Isle of Dogs, the conceit is that, and it's, it's ridiculous, is that an ancient Japanese family that has grown to be super powerful in pharmaceuticals, the military, organized crime, the Kobayashi clan, as it were, has a spiritual association with cats. And this family (laughs) has a long game agenda of expelling all the dogs from Japan, just getting rid of all of them, basically genociding all the dogs. First, they ship them off to an island and then they build camps where they're going to euthanize them. And, um, and, and it's part and it's the humans that are on team cat kind of live among regular humans. And it, it's not really clear to other humans. That they have this hidden agenda. But over all the years, they're trying to kill all the dogs. And there's a folktale that's told in the beginning, which is the story of the little samurai boy, who's another Momotaro figure who uh, is sort of on the side of the dogs and brings the dogs back from extinction. But as domesticated creatures, they're, they're started as wild creatures. And then the Kobayashis fight them and they're going to genocide them. But then uh, uh, the samurai bike goes out and he befriends the dogs and saves them. But they end up domesticated. And, and that much is uh, loosely ba- or loose or pretty closely based on the folktale, but not 100 percent accurate to the folktale. I mean, is that right? That, no, that, that part isn't. I'm, I'm calling him the Momotaro figure because he's the little samurai boy. Yeah. And the kind of a little boy. Momotaro is probably, I mean, based on what reading I've done in, since I've seen the movie, is probably the most famous little boy folktale figure in japanese folklore uh the peach boy i mean he's probably he's up there right you know he's probably probably swings in the same leagues as somebody like what cinderella or something like that mm. um as far as we know right again like as far as we know, japanese we're, we're, we're extrapolating from secondary sources here uh, but uh but the the idea is that the dogs have been shipped off to this island they have a genetically engineered disease to provide a Foucault-style biopower reason for putting them there. The idea, well, it's a public health risk, right? It's, oh, it's because they're sick and it could transfer to humans. We're going to call them sick in order to take away their rights, which is right. textbook textbook Foucault. And the idea that you're sick if you're gay and that's why we're going to imprison you, uh, not because we're trying to protect our sexual social norms in our society and the patriarchal power structures that accompany them. But the point being that all the dogs are shipped off all the dogs are going to be genocided but the dogs that were domesticated still love people and in particular they love children and are devoted to them in this and, and maintain the sense of devotion and that feeling that no matter what you do to them or leave them alone that they that they will look at you with that face that just says that they offer you this unconditional love is the visual gesture that i think don forms the whole movie the dogs looking at the camera with that that reaching out with that empathy that's incomprehensible but also totally intuitive that you you can feel what the dog feels but you don't know what it says and it takes that look and it writes wes anderson characters that justify that gesture Mm. right like they're Mm -hmm. like it writes a bunch of wes anderson characters that would look at you like that were they people and they're voiced by you know bill murray and jeff goldblum uh, it's a, quite an all-star cast. Scarlett Johansson is one of them. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. So we're starting to talk about the dog stuff, and which, which you should yeah. obviously, because um, yeah, this yeah. movie is called "I Love I Dogs." dogs. Um, yeah. uh, we should keep going on the pulling on the Japan thread. Yeah. Uh, in a little bit, but 
Um, it's, it, I'm glad that you mapped this out for me in terms of um, what Wes Anderson's trying to do here because my, my take um, on it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because my reaction was it was a little bit different in that because again, you know, I I have a dog and I think mostly about my dog's enthusiasm and uh, unbridled love and how she expresses it in her own nonverbal way, of course. Um, and then uh, I, I was alienated for lack of a better word i was alienated by the wry wes anderson style dialogue um that um that that we see in this movie um because in my mind if my dog were to be able to speak and communicate with me it would sound a lot more like doug from up rather than (laughs) jeff Jeff goldblum and bill murray in uh in in isle of dogs um and if you haven't seen uh, up well go see it but uh if you remember like the dog is just uh, extremely enthusiastic it's a golden retriever um, which is known uh for being very friendly to humans and it's just like hi hi my name is doug and i love you and squirrel yeah right 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 which is but this movie imagines that the dogs have a much more sophisticated inner life yeah. that still rises to that same sort of end gesture and the point of the movie i think or at least the point of the movie being japanese or so japanese it, other than a desire to explore Japanese visual identity because I think Wes Anderson is first and foremost a, a visual artist, not not identity, but art. art. Like this is a movie the that aesthetic, is aesthetic, yeah, aesthetic, yeah, various sorts of aesthetics, both modern and medieval and ancient in Japanese art. There's haiku in here. You have lots of uh, cherry blossom symbolism, which is of course huge. But um, the point is here that the human, the dogs speak in English in the movie, and the dogs have backfilled this personality that justifies how they look at humans. But the but the dog, you're told at the beginning of the movie that the dogs speaking English are not, they're not like smart dogs. It's not like Secret of Nim, where the rats get injections <laughs> to make them super intelligent, and suddenly these dogs can talk. It's the idea that this is a translation of barking. So when the dogs are walking with Atari, their human companion, through the island of trash the dogs are talking to each other just about stuff but atari is not acknowledging them and i think the in in universe you're supposed to think that the dogs are just barking at each other and that the human is hearing the barking and can't engage with the barking right and and then the human turns to talk to the dogs and then the human talks in japanese and not just like movie Japanese, like Ivan Drago speaks Russian, like <laughs> very fast, very complex Japanese in kind of a in a soft tone of voice a lot of the time, where it's very very hard to make out what he's un- understand what he's saying if you speak English and don't speak Japanese. And I think the flip here is that we don't understand if you're an English speaker, you're you want to understand what the humans are saying, but you can't. Yeah. And this puts you in the perspective of the dog mm-hmm. who wants to know what the humans are saying but can't. And also the perspective of the human relative to the dog is that you you want to understand what they're saying and you make assumptions about what you think they're saying based on yourself and how you think you are. And I think this is a big part of how this movie is not really trying to bridge or or close up the cultural gap between the part of it that's in English and the part of it that's in Japanese, but really trying to outline the really seismic faults that separate the different languages, the languages of dogs, the languages of people, the language of English, the language of Japanese. Mm-hmm. There are huge introversible gulfs that you can like reach across, but not quite get across. Okay. And I think that's a big part of what's happening. Yeah. Okay. So now let's use this as an opportunity to talk about the intermediary human characters who can bridge the gap between English 
and uh, Japanese. Not the dog right. language and, and, and Japanese, but English and Japanese. I'm, of course, right. referring to uh, the exchange student character and then the translator, right? Right. Um, and I, I, I believe what's, what's going on here is that it shows the limitation that although right. they can uh, play roughly in the same ballpark, uh, they're not really quite playing the same game. Yeah, because the Tracy Walker is the name of the exchange student. Who, by the way, is uh, the, the knee-jerk reaction, negative reaction is that, oh, she's a white savior, like Tom Cruise right. in The Last Samurai. Exactly. Uh, but that's and, not quite what's going on here either. No, because she accomplishes nothing over the course of the movie. And and what you you don't know, and I guess, again, we find out through secondary sources, is you know she's trying to lead this revolutionary movement to seize control of the election with a bunch of high school kids you know, however old they are. Uh, and it's, it's not a movie that spends a lot of time on accurately anatomically depicting humans. I have no idea how old these characters are. Yeah, high school. Let's go high school. High school. Yeah, high school. They look very twee and precious, but that's not a surprise. Uh, Wes Anderson makes 50-year-old men look twee and precious. But at any rate, <laughs> uh, high school, he's, she's trying to lead a sort of violent uprising of the high school students to overthrow the government. Violence may be the wrong word, but certainly not nonviolent, right? She wants to, she's storming the election, right? Yeah. Uh, And she, she wants to, she's got like the conspiracy theory and she's mapping out lines on her, on her map. But what you can't hear through the movie is the various people who are talking to her are kind of telling her to stop. Right. Yeah. I think there's a scene where she's talking to a lady. Mark, you can run with that one. Uh, The old lady scene. Oh yeah, it was, uh, it's uh, her her landlord. Um, yeah. uh, it, it basically just comes in, and we learn uh, later on through the, through the translation in this article um, that the oh, that the old lady is basically saying, just like you're being too loud, be quiet. Um, time to go to bed, essentially. Yeah. And and she's just going on and on and on about her uh, revolution and the characters in the conspiracy. Yeah, there's a scene where she talks to a scientist, I think named Yoko Ono, voiced by Yoko Ono, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which wasn't a piece of evidence that people uh, levied uh, as saying that's an evidence of essentialism because, of course, Yoko Ono is in it. Yeah, it's also evidence that on some degree this movie wants you to be mad at it because Yoko Ono is not someone known for being not provocative. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And she's even got, what, yttrium and uh, and oxygen? I actually don't know off the top of my head whether it's yttrium or a different – a, a different element but she's got like y and o periodic table uh or scrabble tiles or whatever like hanging from her hair uh but she like the the white uh character like smacks her in the face and like berates her and abuses her for grieving the death of her uh pi right her principal yeah. investigator in her laboratory who presumably is also her best friend and someone she really looks up to because we don't see her with anybody else in the movie and this high school student has the gall to go up to this woman and and yell at her and smack her around Be- because she's an assertive american and uh she's uh activating that rebellious uh aspect that the that the japanese lack because they're so obedient and uh and yeah. and conformist but but not exactly though right i mean yeah not that's exactly. the dim reading of it but yeah well because there's a there are different ideas of obedience and subversion or rather i guess what the o- obedience the dynamic of kind of master servant obedience versus the r- dynamic of parent child responsibility i think is played out a little bit in this movie uh, because there are there are Japanese characters who are doing what the American character wants to do, but are more successful at doing it because they know how to navigate the society. Mm-hmm. The, the big one is there's this hacker character who is sort of slipped in at various points through the movie. 
uh, as she, he has a big hacking station in the classroom, which is hilarious. Everything is very meta and very overblown. And he over the course of the movie, gradually he joins the military and worms his way into the heart of oh, not the military, the task force that's being run by the Kobayashis. And he worms his way into the heart of its operations. And in like a critical moment, he disables the entire thing so that they aren't able to genocide the dogs. Yeah. And and he makes all of the laptops subservient, which is interesting because he's able to subvert the system by working within the system, which is the opposite mm, of what the yeah. American character does, which is like go lay Miz and, you know, bring up the big flags and, and pro- protest posters and storm the organization. Right. And then you have Atari, the the Momotaro character who is able to fix the system by demonstrating to his adoptive father this the extent of his devotion and the extent of his courage. And the father is inspired, I think, by uh, uh, Atari's lantern, which is his haiku about his relationship with his dog and his adventure on the island and the cherry blossoms, which, of course, are youth and and death, youth and mortality and beauty and and the power of youth. A little bit of Rock Lee and and Maitu guy in there. You know, the the youth uh, uh, is uh, and, and the adoptive father, the uncle, right, the distant uncle who has become the adopted father, who is also the bad guy is so touched by the example of that the uh, that the adopted son has given that he changes his mind about the dogs. And not only that, but he gives the son one of his kidneys <laughs> so that he can survive <laughs> the horrible injuries that he suffered over the course of the movie. And and he becomes incapacitated uh, and uh, and also removed from power through this. And his son supplants him as the mayor of Megasaki in Uni Prefecture. Uh, which is which is this interesting idea that the way to stage a revolution in this context is it, the idea of, of generational change is not being adjudicated by revolution. It's being adjudicated by uh, kind of exemplifying the best qualities of yourself in a way that kind of impresses upon your parents that you're ready to take their place. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and by the way, is it like the, the whole thing about the, the the father being moved and gives the kidney and then the kid becomes mayor? Like it is on its face ridiculous, right? But oh, the, yeah. the, the movie is uh, because it's a Wes Anderson movie. It's it's self aware, highly self aware yeah. of this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there is a very surface level critique being leveled here at Western teenage rebellion as being not well. First of all, as being ineffective and stupid, right? And being like like unintelligent and cruel and insufficiently robust but also i think more importantly as being not the way this society operates this is not a society that is waiting for somebody from the outside to come in and fix it Mm. which is what the story in the new yorker mostly capitalizes on right we're mostly yeah yeah yeah. that's a very important point to make and like and i have to admit like in the theater like a lot of this nuance is lost on me um because it's things are moving pretty fast uh uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of characters in this movie, and uh, because it's a visual medium, and you see uh, an Amer- <laughs> this is our cultural prejudice to play right here because you see a white uh, American person uh, acting with such energy and rebellion and, uh, and and bucking up the status quo, you have to assume that that's a good thing on yeah. screen. <laughs> that's how conditioned well, I have I have been by what culture by our pop culture dominated by white people. Uh, <laughs> welcome into the scarred pop culture psyche of Mark Lee, Asian, Amer- comma, Asian American. Um, okay. I, I, I both value that you're sharing it and also feel pain that you that 
you're not able to get more out of the Avengers. Because <laughs> like, they don't have any Asian characters, which they really should by now. Because they got 50 freaking movies. Uh, yeah, but- I mean, the, the, the Asgardian American representation of the movie is a lot better than the Asian American representation. Um, let's, okay, so we were still talking about um, the theme of translation, right? Talk about yeah. the, well, the, the translator herself, played by uh, Frances oh, yeah. McDormand, right? Because she's like giving a play by play in a certain way, she's editorializing. Yeah, she goes, she she's, is functioning as an interpreter, as a translator, and yet something is still missing there too, right? She's not able to fully bridge the gap. Exactly. I think there's a sense that she's astounded by some of the things that she hears. Sometimes she leaves and she's replaced by a child who does her job for her. Uh, I think there's an idea that you're not you're supposed to believe that you're not getting the full truth from this translator over the course of the movie because there's a translator and there's a narrator. I feel like if they really wanted the translator to be the person telling you what's going on, the translator and the narrator would be fused into one person. But I think it's more like the narrator gives you one level of privileged information. And then on a lesser level is the translator who's giving you her opinion of the Japanese characters, uh, Japanese speaking characters in English. Uh Uh Uh, You know, she she stops and is overwhelmed sometimes. She can't say everything that's said. But I don't know enough of the Japanese to know specifically what she leaves out. I'm sure this is the kind of thing where if you really dug into it, there would be little gems here and there that you would find that would be yeah this is going to be a great movie to rewatch uh, when it comes up for home video release and yeah. you do get the subtitles right uh so so one scene by the way if, if you're a little bit skeptical that any of this is kind of the point of the movie uh a scene that really jumps out to me in our little downton abbey moment philosophy is which is the idea that in every episode of Downton Abbey, there's somebody who talks about hats or tea or fancy outfits in a way that is actually about everything that's happening in the episode that's important. Um, is that there's a scene where Chief, our kind of protagonist dog, who is the stray who becomes domesticated. So mirroring the story of the samurai boy, he goes from being a feral dog to being a domesticated dog over the course of the movie. Uh, and and, and uh, Akira throws a length of pipe, which is a length of rubber pipe, which is sort of shaped like a stick. And Chief is talking to Akira and telling him, I, I'm not going to fetch that. I don't fetch. Don't don't throw that and tell me to fetch it. Uh, I, 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 and he resists authority. He, he doesn't sit. He doesn't take commands. He finds it demeaning. He doesn't really think that humans ought to be his master. And uh, and then he goes to get the stick, you know, and bring it back to Akira. And he says, I'm only I'm doing this uh, because I feel sorry for you. And it's really interesting to consider what's happening in this moment, because the dog is is qualifying what he's doing with a very specific look into his inner psyche. And in you hearing what the dog says in English can think, well, maybe the dog is is making an excuse and he's actually doing it because he wants to follow the boy. Maybe the dog is doing it for the reasons he's saying and he's establishing a connection from the boy that's not a master-servant relationship, but is more about kind of devotion and protection, uh, but also with more of a kind of sense of individual uh, agency than just sort of doing what the human says. But regardless of what the dog says about the fetching, Akira doesn't understand a word of it. Akira thinks the dog went to go get the stick and bring back the stick because he said to go fetch it. Right. And and so the dog can qualify it all he wants, but it doesn't matter because they're not speaking the same language. Yeah. And and, and I feel like the fact now this the movie doesn't present this as a problem. The movie presents this as just the situation. 
I think, uh, and, and that they yeah. establish a very close relationship in spite of all those miscommunication and lack of understanding. Right, exactly. Like he has, I like how he's the earpiece where he can talk to his dog, but only his dog in dog language. And there's like an he has a an Uhura style translator that he can use. Yeah, and th- that, that was kind of yeah. confusing. That's what was going on, right? They were that's how they were able to establish direct communication, and that's the only yes. way that dogs and humans can directly communicate verbally. Uh, I would say that that is a weakness of the movie because I think that the movie. The movie doesn't really want the dogs and the humans to be able to communicate directly. The movie wants the dogs and the humans to come to understand each other through indirect communication and through right. action, uh, not through through words. Uh, and so the idea, but it's a very Wes Anderson thing to do, to add this little accoutrement that's a precious little device that communicates with the dog. I mean, I guess one thing you could say is that he's able to communicate with spots, who is the do- and talk with spots? He communicates with everybody, but he talks with spots, mm-hmm. who is his dog from when he was injured. And spots is a kind of a jerk. I mean, do you, how did you read spots? Because I'm not going to say I'm right about it, but my read was that spots, who is voiced by Lieb, Lieb Shriver, in, is uh, he's kind of a douche. Really? In this movie. So? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I didn't get that feeling from it. Explain a little bit more. Well, I guess, well, okay, so we meet Spots at the beginning of the movie as the first dog that's being shipped off to Dog Island, to Trash Island, and uh, to Demon Island. And uh, and he gets shipped there, and he finds out that the dogs who live there already, who are kind of aboriginal and feral, uh, are not actually all that bad and are in need of leadership because their leader has kind of sacrificed his life for the group and they've eaten him. And it's this horrific thing that they've done. <laughs> and and because they've endured this sort of horrible, this horrible dishonor and sin of eating their pack leader, they can't lead themselves anymore. And the people, the, the dog that would rise up and be the pack leader is too struck with grief and <laughs> despair to lead the dog pack. And so Spots, the outsider, who is also trained in uh, various sorts of operational and security skills, because <laughs> <laughs> he's a security dog from the military, uh, he becomes the leader of the of the pack. And, uh, well, I guess what, I think the thing that he does is he he, he takes on the pack as his family. And he abandons the he leaves. He mentally detaches himself from the kid and asks the kid when the kid finally finds him after all this time, asks him to be relieved of his. Oh, basically his oath as a retainer to this kid, which Mm -hmm. is kind of in samurai style. He's like, look, I made you this promise that I was going to protect you forever. And it's really a beautiful way he says he's like, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to protect you and serve you and and ensure your safety. Uh, In other words, I'll be your dog. (laughs) (laughs) The idea that all dogs make this promise is inferred by the way that the movie says it. And um, and then when the when the guy actually finds him, Spots is his his uh, dog wife is pregnant. And he's going to have a litter of puppies, and he asks to be relieved of his relationship with the human. And Chief is kind of angry and horrified at this, even as a stray, because I, he's come to care for Atari, and also I think because he sees it as breaking a, a solemn oath, uh, and and uh, and th- this is kind of a bad thing. But Spots does this all sort of thing. He has a detachment. He's kind of broish. He's got a little bit of bravado to him, a little bit of formality. He's not as accessible as the other dogs. He's a little more distant. Yeah, but maybe, uh, the, maybe the, he's distance, just with- the distance I just packaged in with um, the the Wes Anderson oeuvre yeah. uh, presenting males is kind of detached <laughs> and and, uh, and kind of even keeled in that kind of way. I mean, I, I think you're you're meant to feel torn along yeah. with along with spots. 
uh, of, of, of different sets of loyalties. Um, and, and that I thought was, was, was reasonable. I didn't think I wouldn't call it douchey. Um, Oh, so, okay. So before we start to talk more about the, the Wes Anderson-ness of this movie, um, because it is a Wes Anderson movie, um, there's one other aspect of, um, white people going to a foreign land. Uh, in yes. a movie <laughs> and how that works or how it doesn't work. Pete, I believe you saw a little movie called Beirut. This <laughs> yes, I saw that. So Beirut, uh, no spoilers for Beirut. If you, if you've not seen Beirut, that's okay. You can well, keep spoiler alert. America kills all the terrorists and <laughs> establishes peace and dominion over the Middle East. Right. Right. <laughs> yes. Beirut is a documentary about how peaceful and prosperous Lebanon is. Hmm. No, uh, this is not, I know I'm not going to tell you what happens in Beirut. It is a period spy drama sort of along the lines of Argo, but a little bit more of a popcorn entertainment, even than Argo is uh, starring John Hamm. Uh, by the way, Beirut has some of the best meta casting I have seen uh, in a long time, maybe even since Air Force One, <laughs> in that uh, John Hamm is sort of the ex uh, dip, the, uh, State Department guy who gets called back into duty because there's somebody who's been kidnapped and he needs to go and negotiate the trade with the terrorists. And he's the kind of loose cannon who can't be trusted. And he gets assigned this uh this State Department official to be sort of his his uh, in parallel to him. There's one who's sort of his attache who like watches him, but there's one who sort of works in parallel to him and always like insults him and works behind his back. And this guy is played by an actor named Shay Wiggum. And Shay Wiggum, you may know from Fast and the Furious 4 and 6, where he plays the exact same role for Paul Walker. Hmm. Where, like Paul Walker is brought in by the government to go and negotiate with terrorists or something. And uh, and Shay Wiggum is like, you're a loose cannon and you can't be trusted. And then he just gets humiliated. But anyway, the, the point is that the movie of Beirut is kind of disposable in certain ways. It's a good thriller. Don't get me wrong. Good thriller. Uh, but, but here's something that happens in the movie Beirut. Every time they go walking around Beirut, the movie at the beginning spends a lot of time telling you about uh, – not a lot of time, but a fair amount of energy – trying to bring you up to speed on the complexity of Lebanon as a political and socio a socio-political and economic entity uh-huh. uh, and and the history of Lebanon which we're not which is a bigger subject than this podcast can take on right now but uh, <laughs> and, that, and then later on they actually go walking around Beirut uh, on various sorts of spy things right it's like I gotta go do this thing and go walk to this place and whenever they go there's that just just and and maybe it's like i love dogs where i just don't know for sure but my sense is it is this nonsense wailing just just Battlestar galactica style exotic arab music right <laughs> it was like it's like every time they turn a corner it can't just be a corner it's a middle eastern corner <laughs> that's got like a little bit of han zimmer and a little bit of like we're in an exotic foreign place yeah okay, okay, okay just let's pause for a second a couple of things yeah. on this one is that um <laughs> w- uh, <laughs> Aziz Ansari has a great bit on this. Uh, okay. I think it was his SNL monologue basically says on Homeland, you know, like a Muslim person shows up and he goes like, music is like, why can't they just play like yakety sax? Then people would be like, damn, Islam is one whimsical religion. Um, I am, you know, paraphrasing here. His delivery, of course, is a lot better yeah. than that. But the other thing is that couldn't you say something similar about Isle of Dogs with the Japanese taiko drum thing going on a little bit? I, huh? think, you, I think you could. And I think that the difference is interesting. That's why I wanted to bring okay. up Beirut. Okay, okay, okay. Because okay. this is the same 
music that you hear all the frickin' time. And it's especially bad because this is a movie that claims to be giving you a more complex look at the city of Beirut than you get from other movies. But then by halfway in, you're basically in an episode of 24. Where it's just like, <laughs> they're from that country that we're not going to. And what I'm saying is the difference is not necessarily about the relationship between it's not about the Orientalism. The, the, the both movies are Orientalist in their in their fashion from the perspective of white people in the sense that like the East is exotic and strange. Yeah, the it's, it's is unavoidable. Like, no matter yeah. how you know many uh, Japanese people, the West Anderson can loathe Castle. No matter you know the fact that uh, it's co-written by a Japanese person, still has an Orientalist aspect to it. Right, undeniable. But the di- the difference is the specificity, and I think that that counts for something. Okay, uh, and in that that the. The, the just the genericness of the music in Beirut to me really sapped the vitality of it and and really took away the humanity of the people that were that you were dealing with and, and just made it feel very pat and by the book and cowboys and Indians. And and it just it just sort of sucked out and drained out the sense that you were actually exploring people who exist and aren't like you. Because I think that there there is the experience of meeting somebody who has a culture that's different from yours, a language that's different from yours, and that there's the idea of like, well, okay, how do we tell their story? But how do they tell the story of the person encountering them? You know, what's the perspective? What's the gap in perspective? How's it similar? How's it different? Uh, At least in Isle of Dogs, they make a really whole bunch of very specific and different sorts of choices at different times for what sort of specific Japanese thing. They bring to bear at one specific moment, and and uh, now you talked about those drums, right? What are mm-hmm. those drums called? I, I think taiko drums. Um, taiko drums. But again, that might be me having a very essentialist and stereotyped view of Japan and Japanese culture and Japanese. Well, music. I mean, I also trust you because you have a rather well developed uh, sense of music. <laughs> like you, you're very experienced in well, music the, arrangement, Western music, uh, to be fair. West, okay, well there you go. <laughs> Um, so, so, uh, I guess, okay. So Tycho apparently is, a, I'm looking up at Wikipedia cause what am I going to do on short notice that they are a traditional, it's a generic term for drum, <laughs> right? Oh, uh, but it, outside of drum. So it's interesting inside Japan, it means drum <laughs> outside of Japan. It means traditional drums that Japanese people might call Wadaiko drums. Uh, and that it has an association with folklore, um, also influential uh, or comes into Japan through Korea and China. So has this sort of far East aspect to it. Like a lot of Dharmic religion is sort of pan Asian in certain ways. Uh, Buddhism is everywhere. Like, like certain sorts of uh, architectural styles in the movies come off as very generic uh, because they aren't really nailed down specifically to a particular period. So it's interesting to think of the Taiko drums because if the movie is really a Japanese folklore movie, then the place of the Wadaiko, Taiko drum, whatever, is warranted and appropriate because mm-hmm. they would play mm-hmm. the drums in order to tell the story. If you were going to tell a story like the Isle of the like, you know, Momotaro or the Isle of Demons or the Isle of Trash, if the Isle of Trash is a kind of a. Uh, Dragon Ball Z style retelling of an age of an age of an, uh, uh, classical Asian epic, then uh, then the taiko drums are entirely appropriate. But from the perspective of a Western viewer who is not aware of whether or not that is appropriate at all, they just see the drums and see, oh, look, it's Asian. Right. Uh, and, and in that sense, it, it feels a little bit more reductive. I, I can feel like 
part of it is the the degree of use and reuse. I don't. I can't think of too many scenes from movies that use drums like this. I'm trying to think of. I mean, for me, the most famous Japanese drum in movies is the little drum from Karate Kid Part Two, where they they twist it in their hands and the little beads hit it. If you want to see a movie that exoticizes the Far East and just really goes to town, I highly recommend Karate Kid Part Two. <laughs> well, we're thinking, if you want to see a movie that uses drums extensively in its soundtrack as well, uh, see Birdman. But I think that's trying oh. to do something a little bit different. Well, let me let me ask you, Mark. Karate Kid Part Two, more or less upsetting than Isle of Dogs. I haven't seen Karate Kid Part Two. You haven't seen Karate Kid? Part I have two? because I have a lot of hangups about the Karate Kid and Pepper oh, and and, uh, and the Mr. Miyagi character. Um, oh, we have, we, we have. Oh, we'll pull these up from the archives. This is uh, going way back to like two thousand eight. Yeah. The first year of overthinking its existence, in which I talk about all my hang-ups about uh, Mr. Miyagi from the perspective of an Asian-American. Uh, not because his character was so, like, on its face, like, bad or mean-spirited. It's just because of all the white people interpreted yeah. it and use, <laughs> and use wax on wax off as an insult for me. Um, but this is really neither here nor there. Um, I mean, it's uh, there. Yeah. <laughs> it's not here. It's, it's again, it's like, it's, you know, like the fact that I, I cannot help but to bring my Asian-American perspective onto this movie, which uh, does not at all want to participate in, in, in this, uh, in, the, in, the, in the discourse around American identity politics, but inevitably, inevitably is being thrown into it. I mean, it's a great example of how – so some of my favorite literary critical concepts are being acted out in the, in the, with regards to this movie. Yeah. One of them is the notion that, that perfect translation is impossible and that mm-hmm. translating from one language to another always involves some manner of interpretation. Or even translating in the same language from one person to another it often involves some form of translation on an essential level. Uh, and another one is, uh, is this, this whole idea of like, um, oh, gosh – the uh, the fact that the intention of the author becomes irrelevant, yeah. <laughs> and that and that and that and when I mean by this is a good example of what I mean by that like you can't really regardless of what Wes Anderson wants to do or even regardless of what the consensus decides or like logic would decide and I use logic in big scare quotes here like let's assume that there that we live in a kind of material Marxist paradigm wherein the rules for what is oppressive and not oppressive are very easy to identify and clear right and uh, and let's not presume that there's a lot of like sort of fudginess and subjectivity in this sort of thing let's assume that everything is pat and cut and dried and can be and can be named for you in seven gifs uh, <laughs> and, and that there is a rational way of explaining how all this works uh, uh, you can't help but have your feeling about it is my take uh-huh. right like like it's not even an option and and in that sense how would it be useful to you and again i'm putting words in your mouth here but feel free to tell me i'm wrong how would it be useful to you to approach this work from the perspective that the author's intention is authoritative like i feel like that would not be that would be so counter to experience no, and so be, counter no. to any sort of value you would get out of the movie that it just is meaningless it's it's like wishful well, thinking because you want the world to be more coherent than it is <laughs> uh <laughs> That's my take on that anyway. But what do you think about that whole idea? I, I agree with you, um, but I, I feel the the desire to carve out some exemption for someone like Wes Anderson, who is an auteur among auteurs, by which I mean, uh, unlike most major Hollywood movies that are the product of studio system and a director and a producer and like a whole bunch of writers and then like a story team behind that as well too. Unlike say something like, well, the Avengers, um, Wes Anderson really has a singular creative vision around his movies 
um, I guess execute them, um, we are led to believe, at least in a fairly uncompromising way. And as such, um, the desire to understand the movies uh, often brings in inevitably um, the desire to understand what the what the filmmaker was trying to do. Yeah, that. that's a good point. As long as that, that desire is kind of located in you, as it's like you want to know what Wes Anderson has to say. Like sure. we want to know, like, like, I don't want to push that on somebody else and say, you have to want to know what Wes Anderson has to say. It's more like the influence of Wes Anderson's work and the kind of scope of his work. And the, and the, I guess what you could say, you could even say after a fashion, the excellence of his work in the sense that it pushes beyond what other people doing the same thing do might demand from people more of a desire to know what he's thinking. Or, yeah. you know, as in like, what, what's your point? Let, let, let me try to resist making a snap judgment based on my own thoughts uh, and, and try to figure out what your perspective is, because it might deepen my enjoyment of the work, potentially. I, and that, that makes sense. I, I can get behind that, too. Uh, they, these things are not inconsistent. The idea that part of the scope of interacting with an author is trying to yearn for and reach out to a person. And if that person has a voice and is creating something that's interesting, uh, you don't want to just say, well, this is what I think. Yeah. Yeah, no. and again, yeah. Wes Anderson has earned it because of his filmography. Okay. Um, so, so this is sort of iterated over. Now, when did he earn it for you? Was uh, it Grand Budapest Hotel? Was it Rushmore? <laughs> Moonrise Kingdom? Which one really tipped the scales? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you're putting him on the spot when they're like that. Um, Grand Budapest Hotel. Okay. Um, I say that without like having seen it super recently, or um, or, or can you know immediately. Uh, you know, give a whole spiel on its depth and uh, nuancedness and Wes Anderson's, you know, uh, uncompromising vision uh, mm-hmm. and how how it just like you know blew me away with its brilliance. And yet, like the the it is just like a incredibly tightly packaged set of sound and music and ideas mm-hmm. um, that you just can't help but want to know uh, how all this came about um, because it just clearly was not by accident and so little of it happened by happenstance. Right. Well, that's awesome. So, so you asked, should we talk a little bit about Wes Anderson? What do you like about Wes Anderson and his singular voice that you've been praising so much? Well, I mean, voice, um, singular yeah. vision, singular mm-hmm. voice. I mean, we know we're, we're making the distinction between um, the visual and the audio aspects of the work. Um, and uh, the, the, the visual uh, is the most striking for me. Uh, I mean, other people have, have, have said this over and over again, right? mm-hmm. the, the symmetric nature of it, the panning, um, the, 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 the twee aesthetic uh, of things. It's all, if nothing else, it's unique, right? No one else does anything even close to this. Um, right. So in, in and of itself, you know, I, I, I like to see that because most of the other stuff I see is, again, you know, the, the big blockbuster stuff with the mixture of sweeping cinematic and the and the, and the handheld stuff. Um, it, it's just uh, nothing else is interesting to look at as a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, it's interesting to think of him as a similar guy to Tim Burton, just because to me, when I watch a Tim Burton movie, I'm thinking first and foremost that this is a series of images that have been put together for my uh, appreciation and that everything about the character and the story comes from the visual depiction first and definitely. Yeah. That's a good way to approach this planet of the apes remake, by the way. Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) Good. I'm glad I found, I need to watch those. Uh, I don't need is a strong word. Need is a very strong word. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and of course we're speaking about mainstream crossover artists and not the full scope of independent film, which is not within the, 
scope of this podcast. <laughs> right? We are we are not here to speak authoritatively as people who have watched all of the biggest and latest in independent film. Uh, this is more kind of a, in terms of big cultural forces and and personas and how they come about. Yep. Uh, yeah, totally. I, one thing that I feel like is interesting about Wes Anderson, or, or I guess that I that I feel about Wes Anderson, and I think Moonrise Kingdom was the one that really got me, although I think a lot of people like Life Aquatic a lot, and I saw Rushmore, it didn't really do a lot for me. But, um, like, the, the idea of, uh, back, we, you mentioned Up, so I'll mention Up. Uh, back, way back in the day for overthinking it, I wrote a piece about Up, and in the piece I talked about the challenge of, you know, once you're an adult, and once you've kind of confronted mortality and, and once you've kind of confronted the world in all of its kind of grand incomprehensible majesty and also it's just crushing mundanity. And once you kind of like uh, I, I kind of think I talk about like Labyrinth is a Labyrinth with Jennifer Connelly, right, is a movie about puberty and becoming a woman and becoming a mother uh, and the sort of uh, potential that a young person has for transformation. And that there's a lot of stories that are kind of about young people transforming into adults and then a lot of other stories about people dying. And uh, and, and I, I was trying to argue that Up was not really a story about going through a coming of age uh, although in retrospect, I guess it kind of is. It's sort of like you, everything old is new again, but there's also this relationship with death in it. But there's this idea of like, once you're an adult, what do you do? And uh, and I think that one of the problems about being an adult and the the a, a culture that really prizes heroes' journeys is that real life as an adult is so upsetting. <laughs> and I don't know if you feel this way, but it is just so upsetting that that just the just the presence of being in the world can become this cacophonous experience wherein adding more to it doesn't really add more. Uh, now, granted, I love the Fast and the Furious movies, so this isn't necessarily true about me all the time. <laughs> but but that it does at times become a problem where it's like, look, I'm living in the real world this week. Right. Somebody died. Something terrible happened. Uh, I confronted some sort of harsh reality that I didn't want to confront or whatever. And at this point, I, I guess what I, I've, I've said, at least to some of my friends, that like the difference between a child and an adult is that uh, ch children found, find life boring and want to get amped in entertainment and adults find uh, life to be amped and want to get boring in their entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, but at the same time, you don't really want to be bored. You want it to be interesting, but you might want to uh, see your interestingness through some sort of veil that allows you to see it. It's almost like looking at the sun. You can't really paint the sun because it, the, the light is too much. And looking at the sun is the kind of thing that's going to hurt your eyes if you do it too much. And being an adult and dealing with truth is like that, where if you like look at the truth too much, it becomes too much for you to bear. And that's why art spends so much time telling the truth but telling it slant, right, is the classic yeah. quote. Find a way to tell the truth other than straight at you, because if you're just straight at you, then you're then you're Tracy from Isle of Dogs walking up to crying Yoko Ono and slapping her in the face and telling her that she needs to, like, complete her hero's journey. Right. Like, no, that's not how life works. I mean, it's uh, like, oh, the case is bring it back to Wes Anderson. It's the difference between, like, just training a camera on a prepubescent boy and girl uh, for, like, 14 hours and having very almost nothing uh, worth watching from that versus like yeah. making it this very constructed composed twee thing which is Moon moonrise kingdom are you aware that boyhood took 12 years to make mark uh, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah well because because what wes anderson does is he intermediates things with and he has this he has a is interesting um 
uh, kind of ironic mixture of alienation and be- and cal- becalming, right? He both alienates things, adds meta, adds abstraction, separates it from reality. But what this usually does is create anxiety because the sort of um, mission statement for alienation theater is to try to force people to think about their lives so that they launch a revolution and change things, right? Because if you just show people entertainment to make them feel better, then nothing will ever change. So you gotta you got to alienate people from their lives, and that way it will force them to rise up and make the world a better place, just like it did in East Germany. Never mind, but because <laughs> that's this old Bertolt Brecht, right? And and the, the alienation effect and Verfram Dukes effect and everything. And, and so uh, and and uh, and Wes Anderson loves al- this alienation and this abstraction and this meta and this sort of separating events from a a kind of re- reflection of reality, a representational reflection of reality. It's very presentational. Yeah. But in doing it, he is constantly soothing you. He is constantly soothing you, constantly trying to make you feel better, constantly trying to calm you down because the underlying ideas he wants to talk about are very upsetting. Uh, right. And like there, this is a movie about a child who has a gear shift stuck through his skull, dripping <laughs> gore. Wandering through a blasted toxic that. wasteland with a this is like this this movie could be Grave of the Fireflies, right? But it's not. I mean it couldn't quite be Grave of the Fireflies, but it could get close, right? This could be a really, really, really depressing movie, except that the movie is constantly soothing you. And and that's kind of what dogs are for, too. Oh, there you go. Right? Oh, wow. I love dogs. I yeah. love dogs because when <laughs> things are bad, you pet them and they love you. Right. I, <laughs> like the dog that's the mascot for the local high school baseball team is a great example of that dynamic. Uh, uh, I don't know which dog it is. Is that is that Jeff Goldblum dog or is that Bill Murray dog? Is that is that Duke? Oh, is that boss? Yeah, they, um, they're not quite differentiated uh, uh, yeah. enough to, to for recall. And that, again, is a little bit of a, a weakness, kind of the uh, of the, the flattening of, of the, the dogs. But like the one of the first things that the boy, the boy crashes his airplane on this trash heap, right? He's almost certainly going to die. And one of the first things he encounters is a dog in a cute baseball sweater right yeah. <laughs> and, and the idea here is to allow you to it, it's like an eclipse mask so that you can look at the sun at least the way that i feel it is and other people i'm sure have other ideas about it but the idea that it it intermediates and shades you from the full emotional impact of what's happening and calms you down and soothes you so that you can appreciate the complexity of ideas that would otherwise be too loud to be felt uh, like like they would just come blasting at you and the subtlety in them, which is present, would be lost. Uh, like they're like you can you can I don't know. You could be a metalhead and appreciate the differences between different heavy metal songs in a very fine degree. Uh, you could do that. I can't because right? it's it's all too loud. Mm-hmm. I can't. I And again, I can watch Fast and the Furious movies because I've become attuned to it and be like, OK, so that car, right, is a Nissan Skyline GTR. And, you know, that car. Right is a seventy dollars charger, and like this is what that means when they're both flipping over this overpass, right? Like, uh, but at this, but if you just watch the movie, you can't get that. This is the old problem of of how our grand interpretation of the Transformers movies, right, Mark? Which was it's uh, it's Sheila Booth pushing a filing cabinet. Uh, down, down, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like undifferentiated noise, yeah, uh, without the. Uh, Get out of the way! Clank, clank, clank. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and but but Wes Anderson, but I think a lot of ways that you tell the truth slant are about putting that sunshade over the eclipse, so that you can appreciate things that come at you loudly and intensely for the complexity that they also have. 
but that is often difficult to comprehend. And that that is that is what I appreciate. That's that's what I appreciate about Wes Anderson, I think. And that's also how I've sort of come to terms with what I refer to as Bell and Sebastian rock, uh, which is a, a genre of music that is heavily featured in this movie, despite the fact that it takes place entirely in futuristic Japan. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, it still has twee indie rock in it for some reason, uh, because it's a Wes Anderson movie that needs to constantly soothe you and remind you that that, you know, you should calm yeah. down. And, and, and um, as as we were talking about this, I was reminded of what uh, the plot of Grand Budapest Hotel is, which is basically like a fascist military takeover of a country. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a nice, cute little hotel model, and there's a funicular. Aww. Yeah, exactly. Funiculars that, and... are great. <laughs> Funiculars only go good places, right? Right? <laughs> In a Wes Anderson movie, yes. Like, you start at Grand, Grand Budapest Hotel, and the best-case scenario is that The Shining is going to happen, right? Oh. <laughs> like, that's the best-case scenario, is that you have this giant hotel, and nothing is going to happen, and people are going to go insane living in it. That's like the that's not what happens, but that's the best-case scenario. But such a delightful best-case scenario. It really is. It really is. So yeah. so anyway, so so this idea that, like, this the music calms you down and makes you relax, and you might be sad about something something but here it's going to be beautiful and and i think what you talked about uh with the problem that this uh, this this approach has a problem with masculinity which is one of the only situations wherein masculinity does not own the problem right which is that like the fact that wes anderson movies uh have a a have to stretch in order to engage with masculinity is like the only problem that masculinity is involved in that it doesn't cause <laughs> but uh hold on wait wait wait, wait. okay the, the it, 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 it's involved in the problem uh, of masculinity that it, it doesn't cause unpack well, yeah. that a little bit more so the so let's take the character of spots in this movie yeah and this is also the, this is also about fantastic mr fox which this movie is fairly similar to but i don't want to get into it because i haven't seen it and i just sort of know what it's about in general but like the the idea this movie has both uh, tame dogs and and feral dogs. It really what it has is it has dogs with masters and it has strays. Uh-huh. That's the that's the salient cleavage that it makes. Uh, do you have a master or do you love the masters or are you a stray uh, and have been alienated from the masters and as such don't acknowledge any sort of obedience? And and, and there's like a samurai when, ronin thing going on there, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that's yeah. a really good point. Um, and all of the. All of the the domesticated dogs, while brave, are presented as very bougie and, and kind of and kind of uh, <laughs> meek. Ima- like meek. They get oh, I like I, I get pampered. I, I get to eat Kobe beef, right? <laughs> oh, like I, I really I get to wear a little sweater, you know? Oh, like I and and um and then you meet the at the beginning you meet the dog the the stray dog uh, chief who has this very threatening. Uh, power and, and this very threatening energy, which manages to some degree to hold the pack together and help the pack survive. And you get the sense that it's sort of part of the necessary dynamic of these dogs dealing with each other. But the movie can't really sustain an engagement with this kind of chief. About halfway through the movie, chief gets a bath in a in a barrel of beer, which is I think jokingly labeled with a watery brand of Japanese beer, which a joke you don't get if you don't speak Japanese or understand Japanese culture. Mm. Um, and uh, it's lost in translation, as it were. Right. And um, but at any rate, he gets a bath and he, he just loses all of his ferocity by the end of the movie. Like like all of all of Chief's kind of savage savagery, the stuff that Nutmeg says at the beginning that she's attracted or she's I guess she's at the end. And she's she's not attracted to tame dogs 
is, is what she says, right? <laughs> I is think so. Not, I, 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 yeah. I call it Manson. Um, while that's true about about uh, Chief, based on the information we have about the movie, the aesthetic of the movie kind of demands that Chief be rendered harmless before the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. And and yeah. in the same way, Sport, when we meet him, has to be kept at an arm's length and is the least intimate of the dogs we encounter. I think we even feel more intimately connected to Oracle and Jupiter. This sort of big floppy Saint Bernard, right? Is is Jupiter the sort of paternal the paternal dog, and then Oracle, which is the dog that watches TV. <laughs> but then I feel like this is kind of characteristic of Wes Anderson movies, and it is something of an indictment of masculinity. And it's like, well, if you really were to understand these people for real, you would see their vulnerabilities. And it's like, well, that's true, but there that is sort of. Uh, People don't cease to be capable of aggression because you understand that they're capable of vulnerability. And and it's sort of a question of are you invested in reflecting the world as it is or as you want it to be? And I think Wes Anderson, by and large, is involved with the fr- the former of those two rather than the latter. Uh, but at the same time, uh, always not always, but often it, is it needs to defang his wolves in order to get them to fit. Uh, and, and in a way that when Tim Burton doesn't do it, it kind of gets kind of pedestrian also i don't know and he's, doing, he's doing both right it presents yeah. the world as it is which is the dark underbelly of all these things we've been talking about and then the, it's the world as he wants us to be which is carefully composed and pastel and tweet and all these things right right and i think i don't know it's not necessarily wes anderson's aesthetic that doesn't abide this as well as this entire indie rock aesthetic that is rejecting this note of masculinity and i think it's it's a conscious choice right it's a cultural movement uh maybe it's just that i that when i hear this kind of music you know, I don't know what it is about me and my upbringing and who I am, but part of me kind of grates at it because I, I have had to come to terms with my aggression uh, and, and, and make friends with it and shake its hand in the dark. Right. Uh, and, and and that's uh, that's something I've had to do to survive as, yeah. as a person. Have, have, you, uh, have you spit out all of your explosive teeth? And there are, there, are, there are no more enemies. <laughs> That's it. You, if you, you know, if you spit out all your explosive teeth, you can't chew your meat. And what, what is that? Is that? Is there any better summary of of the tragedy of masculinity in modern society than that? Which is that that the very thing that sustains you is like owned by the military industrial. <laughs> And is is like you know not natural and is hard, hard, terribly dangerous and really shouldn't be in your body <laughs> and everybody thinks it shouldn't be anyway yeah. and, and, and yet it's all presented so whimsically in this movie <laughs> exactly it's like it's hard you know it's hard about to talk about any movie without talking about yourself and I think it's especially hard to talk about Wes Anderson movies without talking about yourself which might be a big part of their uh, their what makes them special mm-hmm. I suppose and maybe on that note. Uh, it's time to wrap this one up. Uh, any final thoughts, Mark, before we punch out? Or uh, should we uh, see you guys in uh, in another week? Yeah. Gosh, think, yeah. My Go last thought is that I mostly appreciate Wes Anderson movies rather than really enjoy them because mm-hmm. of all this alienation, um, because it's so aggressively twee. Like, I'll, I'll never say that Wes Anderson movies are my favorite movies in the same way that, like, I don't know, um, a Star Wars or a Terminator movie uh, would be right, one, of my, right. one of my favorite movies. That doesn't, that doesn't make them that doesn't make them bad or worse. It just makes them very, very different and unique. That's a good yeah. thing. Yeah, I feel like that's a Venn diagram that's easy to draw, and it has a little bit of overlap. You know, it doesn't have no overlap, but I don't think Wes Anderson would look at his body of work and be like, "Man, people whose favorite movie is Terminator don't think my movies are their favorites." <laughs> well, you know what? You know what? Oh, no. You know what? You, term- you know what's important? You know what's important in Terminator but. movies? Dogs. <laughs> They, they find out where the Terminators are because they protect the humans. It all comes together.
it does come together and uh and and like the stick thrown to be retrieved by your faithful companion we the overthinking it podcast will depart from you for a week to return uh back back to you uh yapping and barking and trotting along with that look of love and adoration in our eyes uh this time around next week so thank you mark and thank you, audience. And please check out our Eurovision content on YouTube. Subscribe to the YouTube channel to get updates about the new videos that are coming out all the freaking time. And come meet us in New York. Come hang out. It's going to be great. It's going to be a lot of fun. But whether you can do that or not, please visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. We didn't even mention the Tilda Swinton. Oh, good Tilda Swinton. Good Tilda. Here, fetch, Tilda, fetch. Tilda is a dog that works. <laughs> <laughs>